0: Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy
1: Spreeman, and boy, do we have a fun and informative topic for you tonight. We are calling it Christmas Mythbusters. Michelle, remember that TV show Mythbusters from a few years ago, uh, where the stars of the show would perform these scientific experiments to test the truth of common knowledge adages like, you know, do elephants, are they really afraid of mice? Or can an opera singer really shatter a glass of water or whatever with her voice? So things like that. Yeah, that was a fun
0: show. I used to to watch that from time to time. I, I remember what I remember is that they used to blow up a lot of things and crash cars into a lot of things. So it was kind of a fun show. We don't have anything that fancy for our listeners tonight. We simply have God's word and common sense, and we are going to apply those to some commonly held beliefs about Christmas and the story of Jesus's incarnation. And we're going to see which ones stand as biblical and which which ones turn out to be myths.
1: Yes, and I I agree. You know what, I think that, that a lot of these things blew my mind when I first found out as an older convert uh, that all the things I thought of in my life that weren't part of the Christmas story, um, well, that just blew my mind. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, it really can. When you've thought, you know, you've seen something on a movie a million times so, and it just gets into your psyche and you think it's true or whatever, but let's get to work and bust some of those myths so we can be
1: thinking biblically. All right. Well, Michelle, our first possible myth is the idea that Mary rode a donkey when she and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census in Luke chapter two. Now you see it depicted on Christmas cards all the time. It's mentioned in Christmas carols. I guess there's even a a hymn, although I've never heard this one, but it's titled Mary Riding on a Donkey. Uh, is this a Christmas myth or is there truth to it? Well, let's go to scripture and find out. Luke chapter two, verses four and five says this. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Huh? Well, that's all it says about the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The Bible doesn't tell us what method of transportation Mary and Joseph used. So, we don't know for sure. Mary could have ridden a donkey. She could have ridden in a cart, or she could have walked, although at that stage of your pregnancy, yikes, that would have been hard. But (laughs) uh, all Scripture tells us, though, is that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, and it doesn't say how they got there. So, that one may be a myth, or it may not be. Neither of those possibilities would be in conflict with Scripture, though.
0: Yeah, I always wondered, you know, sometimes when you watch those Bible movies, you see, um, like Herod's wife being carried in a sedan chair, you know, the chair that's yes. on the sticks. And I thought for a minute, well, maybe she rode in something like that, but the, that kind of seems like something richer people would have would have used, not not somebody poor like Mary. So we really don't know. And it it really doesn't matter, but it's just something fun to wonder about. And that's kind of what we're doing tonight. So that one might be a myth or it might not be. We're not really sure. But next up, we're going to talk about this. Was Mary in active labor when she and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem? Well, it makes for dramatic nativity movies, but it's really very unlikely. God himself had given Joseph the enormous task and grave, um, you know, responsibility of taking care of Mary and Jesus. We've all seen first time dads and the weight of responsibility that they feel, um, to protect and to provide for their wives and their own babies. And this was God's son. I mean, this is not something you want to mess up. Can you imagine? The weight of responsibility Joseph must have felt. He must have been, you know, just quaking in his sandals to make sure he got everything right. He certainly would not have waited until Mary was very near her due date and risked her delivering the baby in the open country on the trip, which would have been dangerous. And not to mention if that had happened, that would have been outside of Bethlehem. So that would have, that would have failed to fulfill prophecy. Luke 2, 6 says this, and while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. It says while they were there, not the minute they got there or as soon as they got there. It says the time came, not it's time, Joseph, find me a room right now. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) The phraseology of this verse suggests that Mary and Joseph spent some time in Bethlehem before Jesus was born. Rather than taking Mary to Bethlehem at the last minute, it's much more likely that Joseph carefully prepared for the trip, made sure, you know, to get there with plenty of time to spare and made arrangements to stay in Bethlehem until the
1: baby was born. Uh Aha. All right. Well, okay, next, let's consider how accurate our understanding is of the place that Jesus was born. We know it was in Bethlehem, but was Jesus born in a barn or a stable? And what about that inn and that innkeeper? Well, the very familiar verse, Luke 2, 7, tells us, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, you know, to our modern Western minds, an inn is like a hotel. It's a business that rents rooms out to travelers. But in biblical times, the cultural rules of hospitality dictated that travelers stay with usually family members or friends or anyone who would extend hospitality to them.
0: Yeah, that's right, Amy. You know, that had been the norm of Middle Eastern hospitality and travel as far back as the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember way back in Genesis 19 when the angels came to Sodom and they were planning to spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly, the text says, to spend the night with him, a perfect stranger instead. And then in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends the disciples out to preach to the various cities of Israel. He doesn't say, I've made you guys reservations at the (laughs) holiday inn. He says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy and worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So we can see from that passage that even after Jesus grew up it was still the practice of the time to stay in someone's home even a stranger when traveling. So there was no hotel like inn in Bethlehem when Jesus was born and
1: of course no innkeeper. Yeah, that's right, Michelle. The Greek word cataluma, usually translated as "in" in Luke 2-7, would be more accurately translated as guest room or upper room of a home. Uh, that same sort of upper room is what Jesus used for the Last Supper. One of Joseph's relatives would have welcomed him and Mary into their home when they got to Bethlehem. But because Bethlehem was packed with visitors arriving for the census, the cataluma or guest room of the home they stayed in was likely already full. So instead of giving birth in the crowded upper room of the home, Mary moved to the lower room. Now this lower room would have had a space for the animals who uh, were cold, they had to be brought in at night, and they would have had a a, a feed trough or a manger giving her a very convenient cradle for the little Lord Jesus to lay down his sweet head. Jesus was not born in the kind of barn or stay we think of here in America and uh, usually see in the traditional nativity scenes. Christmas myth busted.
0: Yeah. You know, I sure would like to trade in my nativity set that has a stable with it for a more accurate one yeah. with a house. I was just thinking, you know, as we were putting the script together, I was thinking about all these different myths and how it would change my nativity set and, and how interesting it would look if we, you know, fixed it up to, to match with what was more likely to be uh, true of of the Christmas story than you know with a barn and and things like that so yes <laughs> I thought that would be fun <laughs> definitely <laughs> now this next potential myth might surprise you Amy I had never heard of this one until I started researching Christmas myths did Jesus ever cry when he was a baby what do you think Amy
1: well, um, you know, there, there are songs about this. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that. But you, you know, you think of, well, well, Lord, the Lord, what, what would he have ever had to cry about? Right. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think he probably did, but let's find out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all familiar with the lovely Christmas carol away in a manger. And yeah. part of one of the stanzas says this. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, and that has led some people to think that Jesus never cried as a baby. But I strongly doubt that that was the hymnist's intent. The stanza reads as though, in that particular moment when he woke up, Jesus was content and happy. Not that he never ever cried at all, right, moms? I mean, we've we've all had those moments when we we pass by the nursery door at nap time or we hear the baby on the baby monitor and and the the baby has has waked up and he's happily babbling to himself or maybe playing or whatever and he's just happy in that moment when he wakes up. And then furthermore, we know from scripture that Jesus was not only fully God, he was also fully human. Human babies cry when they're hungry or tired or sick or in pain or a thousand other scenarios. That's how they communicate before they can talk. And Jesus was a real live human baby who cried, nursed, spit up, burped, need his diaper changed, fell down when he was learning to walk and had to be potty trained. You know, the only type of crying we know that he never did was sinful crying, crying because he didn't get his own way or crying because he was angry angry and frustrated and things like that. We know he never did that kind of crying since we know that Jesus was without sin. So did Jesus cry when he was a baby?
1: Yes. Christmas myth busted. All right. And actually, that myth really helps us make the main point we want to make with this episode tonight. Don't get your theology from Christmas carols or stories or even nativity movies, and especially not Christmas cards, right? Get your theology from the Bible. And that's just where we're going to go to again to find out whether or not our next potential myth is indeed a myth, or could it even be true? Hark! Did the herald angels actually sing? Well, it's possible, but we don't know for sure. We know that the Gloria in Excelsis Deo proclamation was spoken to the shepherds because Luke 2, verses 13 and 14 says this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So he's saying it. So the Bible says He, uh, they were saying that part. They were actually just saying it, speaking it, not singing it. But it also says that they were praising God. Now in the Bible, though praise can be expressed in many ways, singing is one of the most common and natural ways of praising God. So while we know the angels weren't singing exclusively, there's no reason why they couldn't have been singing. Singing at some point in that night, so hark the herald angels sing. Well, that's not necessarily a myth.
0: Yeah, and I'm really glad that one's not a myth, Amy, because that's my favorite Christmas Aww. Christmas carol. It's it's got such rich theology yeah. in it. Well, here's our next possible myth. There were three, count them, three wise men. Hmm. Do we know for sure how many wise men there were exactly? Well, we know there were at least two because the Bible speaks of them in the plural but there could have been a big group of them. Our minds are set to three because the Bible mentions that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then there are Christmas carols, you know, like We Three Kings. And of course, every nativity worth its salt comes equipped with three wise (laughs) men. But it's just as possible that two wise men gave three gifts or that three gifts were given corporately by a larger group of wise men. So the best we can say on this one is that there were at least two, but there could have been three or a whole lot more, not necessarily a myth. You know, Amy, I have several nativity sets and one of them was given to me by one of my kids when he was small. So I'm pretty sure he got it from the dollar store because it only came with two wise men. But, you know, now I'm wondering if that manufacturer knew something that we don't. Maybe there were only two wise men. You never
1: know. You know, with all the nativity sets that people have, maybe we should just combine a bunch of them and have a whole bunch of angels and a whole bunch of wise men. And, um, you know, for some reason, there's always a whole bunch of donkeys and sheep, but not a whole bunch of cows. So there's only, one cow. I don't know why, but... (laughs) Oh, well, I, I fondly remember the one that I had as a kid. My parents bought well, I think my mom might have made it in ceramics or something, plaster, um, but she had put glitter sparkle on everything. So um, it, it's oh my. pretty cheesy now that I look back. But at the time, hey, I thought that <laughs> glitter stuff was pretty cool. So, <laughs> And now it gets all over everything. <laughs> it does. All right. Well, moving on, here is our next possible myth. Were Anna and Simeon married to each other? Hmm, nope. <laughs> so, I guess we cleared that one up right away. The end of Luke 2 tells us the story of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple to offer the appropriate sacrifice for him as the first male to open the womb. So, while they are there, Simeon shows up and prophesies over Jesus and Mary. And Luke 2.38 tells us, at that very hour, Anna also began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But really, nowhere does the passage even hint that Anna and Simeon were married to each other, or that they even knew one another. It might be that people sometimes think Anna and Simeon were married because their stories are so you kind know, of back-to-back in Scripture, because they showed up at the temple at the same time, and because we tend to assume Assume that they were both elderly. Uh, we know Anna was at least eighty-four, but technically, we're never told Simeon's age or that he was elderly. Uh, but verse thirty-seven clearly tells us that Anna lived as a widow. She wasn't married to anyone, including Simeon. So uh, we don't know whether Simeon was married or not, since the text doesn't tell us. But we do know that he wasn't married to Anna. Anna and Simeon married to each other? Nope. Christmas myth busted.
0: Amy, isn't it funny how we can get mixed up about things like that? I remember years ago, we were uh, at a church, and this particular church decided to do a living nativity, and they portrayed Mm. Anna and Simeon as husband and wife, and it really threw me off enough that I had to go back to Scripture and look at the text to find out whether or not they were really married, (laughs) because I couldn't remember. So it's really important to look to Scripture on things like that.
1: It really is. And in fact, um, even other uh, religions will say things like, well, Anna might have been Saint Anne, who was actually Mary's mother, but there's no biblical text anywhere that would ever uh, confirm that. So, uh, in fact, we don't even know Mary's mother's name at all. The Bible doesn't say. Uh, There's no historical record. I I think that came out of a a Roman Catholic type of manuscript somewhere, Uh, but even the Catholic Church has said that they don't know for sure. So anyway, there's that. So yes, get get mm. your truth from Scripture. <laughs> so. Absolutely.
0: Well, our next possible myth is such a sad part of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. Were hundreds of babies really mm. murdered in the slaughter of the innocents? Matthew 2.16 tells us that an enraged King Herod sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under in an attempt to murder Jesus. Now, we tend to think of, of scores or even hundreds of babies being murdered in this event, which has come to be known as the slaughter or the massacre of the innocents. But the Beloved Christmas Carol, like that Beloved Christmas Carol says, it's a little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem had a population of approximately 1,500 at that time. So statistically speaking, scores or hundreds of baby boys aged two and under in a population that size would have been impossible. Scholars estimate that probably about 12 to 15 baby boys, which is still a horrifying tragedy but 12 to 15 would probably be more accurate. So while it's awful that any babies died in this massacre, happily, it was far fewer than we tend to imagine.
1: And the myth of hundreds of babies being murdered is busted. (laughs) Well, there you go. And we've dealt with um, these next two issues in Christmas episodes of A Word Fitly Spoken in years past. But since they're Christmas myths, we want to include them in this episode, too. Here's the first one. Does Jeremiah 10, 3 and 4 forbid us from having Christmas trees? Well, let's give that passage a little read. says this, "'For the customs of the peoples are vanity. "'A tree from the forest is cut down "'and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. "'They decorate it with silver and gold. "'They fasten it with hammer and nails "'so that it cannot move.'" Now, I know this sounds like a Christmas tree, but okay, it's important to look at Scripture to make sure that none of our Christmas traditions actually conflict with God's Word. We should definitely be doing that, but as we're doing that, we need to make sure we're handling God's Word rightly and in context. If we read all of Jeremiah 10, it's really clear that the entire chapter is talking about idol worship. The English Standard Version, or ESV, even has a little heading at the top that says, Idols and the Living God. So verses 3 and 4 of Jeremiah 10 are not referring to Christmas trees. They're talking about ancient pagans, not Christians, chopping down trees to create wooden idols to worship, not chopping down a tree to decorate it as it is in honor of the birth of Jesus Christ or for any other reason. It's talking about the crafting of wooden idols. We know this because the phrase in verse 3 says, worked by the hands of a craftsman. Now, some translations render it, a craftsman shapes it with a chisel. The craftsman carved a piece of wood into an idol, which was then often dipped into or plated with gold or silver. This is exactly what's being described in verses 8 and 9. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is bought from Tarshish and gold from Ufaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing, the clothing of the craftsmen would dress up the idols in violet and purple, and they are all the work of skilled men. So idol worship is the custom of peoples or pagans. That is vanity, as it says in verse 3. And that is what God prohibits in this passage, not Christmas trees.
0: Yeah, you know, Amy, I had actually never heard this passage in Jeremiah 10 used, or should I say misused, to prohibit Christmas trees until one of our listeners asked about it a couple years ago. The verses that I've always heard misused this way are the Old Testament verses that refer to idol worship taking place under, quote, every green tree. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. maybe it's because every green tree sounds like evergreen tree, which is what Christmas <laughs> trees are. Um, There are several verses that use this phrase, every green tree. Here's one of them. Uh, This is De- uh, Deuteronomy 12, 2. And it says, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Again, Mm -hmm. all of these verses that use this phrase were talking about idol worship because that's apparently where idol worship took place. The tree itself wasn't intrinsically evil. It's the fact that people were using it in their idol worship. So listeners, unless you're worshiping your Christmas tree as an idol or you're using your Christmas tree as some sort of altar from which to worship an idol, your Christmas tree itself isn't evil. You don't have to have a Christmas tree in your house if you don't want one, but you can't use Use these scripture passages to justify your choice or to bind the consciences of other believers. If you do, you're just as guilty of twisting scripture as many of the false teachers we warn against on this program. There's not a single verse of scripture that teaches against having a Christmas tree. This myth is busted. <laughs>
1: Alright. But there are some wonderful stories out there about Christians using the Christmas tree to teach theology and point people to Jesus. For example, tradition holds that in the year 723, a monk named Boniface was traveling through Germany preaching the gospel. On Christmas Eve, he came to the village of Geismar, where every winter the locals would offer a human sacrifice, yikes, usually a baby or small child, to appease the Thor, the thunder god. They offered this sacrifice under a tree that they called the thunder oak. Boniface arrived just in time to interrupt the sacrifice and declared, Here is the thunder oak, and here is the cross of Christ that shall break the hammer of the false god Thor. So he saved the child that was to be sacrificed and told the people this, Quote, this is the birthright of the Christ the Son of the Almighty the Savior of mankind fairer is he than Baldur the Beautiful greater than Odin the Wise kinder than Freya the Good Since he has come, sacrifice has ended. The dark Thor, on whom you have vainly called, is dead. Deep in the shades of Niflheim, he is lost forever. And now, on this Christ night, you shall begin to live. This blood tree shall darken your land no more. In the name of the Lord, I will destroy it. So the thunder oak fell and the people amazed that Thor didn't strike Boniface dead with a lightning bolt actually listened to his preaching. So just beyond the fallen thunder oak was a small fir tree. Boniface pointed to it and said this, quote, This little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is the wood of peace. It is the sign of an endless life, for its leaves are evergreen. See how it points upward to heaven? Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There it will shelter no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness.
0: Oh, I love that story. It's such a, yeah. such a great story. We don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it's a great story. <laughs> and, you know, it's said that Martin Luther also used the Christmas tree to teach his own children about Christ. Tradition holds that Luther was walking home one night and was captivated by the beauty of an unassuming fir tree with the stars of the night sky shining through its branches. He wanted to describe this lovely scene to his family when he got home, but he knew that words would fail to capture what he had seen. So he chopped down the little tree, brought it into the house and attached small candles to the branches to mimic the stars that he had seen, the very same stars that had shone down on the Christ child in the manger, the stars of heaven that Jesus left behind to come to earth as a baby at Christmas. So are these stories about Boniface and Luther true? Well, like I said, we don't know. They could be nothing more than legend or or Christian fanfic, if you want to call it that. There are so many stories and legends running amok out there about the supposed pagan origins of Christmas trees and other aspects of Christmas. And so if you're into believing ancient legends that nobody can verify, I mean, why not believe the ones that bring honor and glory to Christ instead of the ones about evil? But I'm, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, and that brings us to our last myth for tonight. We hear it every year. Christmas has pagan origins, so Christians shouldn't celebrate it.
1: That's right, Michelle. And maybe our listeners have heard these sorts of arguments before. I know I have, and I know you have too, Michelle. How about this one? Christmas has pagan origins. Uh, What we know today as Santa's elves started out hundreds of years ago as demons. Hmm. How about this one? The Roman winter solstice celebration of Saturnalia morphed into Christmas And supposedly, there are connections between Mithraism and Christmas... And then there was Krampus the goat demon who punished misbehaved children, and that turned into Santa Claus leaving lumps of coals in uh, naughty children's stockings. Boy, how am I doing so far? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. These alleged assertions about the origins of Christmas go on and on. But are these things actually true? Do some aspects of the celebration of Christmas find their origin in millennia-old paganism? Possibly, but are you participating in that paganism if you put up a tree or give gifts at Christmas (coughs) time? Probably not. Now, the connections between paganism and Christmas are so ancient and uncertain that most people aren't even aware of them. So how could you possibly be participating in paganism if you're not even aware of its existence, or you have no intention of participating in it, and it's got nothing to do with your reasons for celebrating?
0: Yeah, I mean, think about this, listeners a number of our days of the week and months of the year were originally named for pagan idols and gods. Sunday, Sunday, here's sun in there. Sunday was originally a pagan Roman holiday, and the sun was an object of worship for many ancient peoples. So should we stop having church on Sunday because of that? I mean, are we somehow participating in paganism by holding the Christian day of worship on an ancient pagan feast day? Well, Of course not. There's a really important point that we Christians need to grasp here, and not just as it relates to Christmas. Ancient pagans don't own certain days on the calendar or any particular object or symbol, and neither do modern-day pagans, by the way. Look how homosexuals have co-opted the rainbow, God's symbol of the Noahic covenant. They don't own that symbol. God does.
1: And by extension, God's people do. That's right, Michelle. Psalm 24.1 tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when godless people take a day or an object that God has created and they use it for evil, they are the ones in the wrong not godly people who come after them and want to use that same day or object for a godly purpose. To say that Christians can't use a certain day or object for celebrating Christmas because maybe pagans use that day or object for a pagan purpose is to give those ancient pagans power over Christians, power that they have no business holding.
0: Yeah. And furthermore, just because pagans used a day, an object or a symbol for their wicked practices hundreds or thousands of years ago does not mean that those days, objects or symbols carry the same meaning today. I mean, think about the way a mere word can change meanings in such a very short time. The 1890s, the 1890s, they were known as the gay 90s. The song Deck the Halls contains the phrase, Don, we now are gay apparel. The primary meaning of the word gay just a 100 to 150 years ago in our own country was happy, merry or festive. And now it means homosexual. But the Christmas as pagan folks would have us believe that we're supposed to attach centuries-old definitions and practices from foreign cultures half a world away to our 21st century American Christmas celebrations. Santa may have had demon elves hundreds of years ago in another country and culture, but in our culture today, they're just his happy little helpers. No demonic strings attached. The meanings of cultural practices and symbols change over time. And if anyone should understand that, it ought to be Christians. Think about the cross. The cross was the emblem of suffering and shame to everyone in the known world at the time of its use. And we took it and turned it into a symbol of victory and triumph. The Romans wanted people to look at the cross and think criminal. And today we look at the cross and think Christ. They wanted the cross to evoke fear. And to us, it means
1: freedom. Amen, Michelle. And there's certainly no biblical requirement for Christians to observe Christmas in any way. So anyone who doesn't want to observe the holiday doesn't have to. But there's also nothing in the Bible that says we can't celebrate Christmas. So Christians are free to do so as long as we aren't violating any of the clear commands and principles of Scripture. But whatever conclusion we come to, it's crucial that we base everything we do on God's holy word correctly applied to our actions and our motivations not supposed connections between Christmas and paganism. There are probably dozens of objects in our homes and traditions that we observe and the days on the calendar that can, if we go back far enough and look hard enough, be traced back to one pagan religion or another. Don't be ruled by that. Christians are ruled by God's word, not fears and superstitions. Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it's pagan? No way. That myth is busted. That's
0: right, Amy, and I'm so glad. You know, just just like it's important, um as a, a people, as a culture to observe a season of Thanksgiving, I think our society, even though it's mostly an unchristian society, desperately needs a season focused on joy and hope and giving and family. And we're losing that more and more each year. But to the extent that we still have it during the Christmas season, I don't think Christians should be the ones to take that away. Rather, we should use it as an opportunity to point to the only one who can, who can give us true joy and hope, the one who created and who defines the family and the greatest giver of all, Jesus, who gave his life for us.
1: Mm. And that's no myth, ladies. It is the gospel truth. And I think it's a perfect note to end this episode on. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed helping us bust some myths and confirm the truths of God's Word tonight. And we want to thank our listeners here in America and over in Great Britain and Australia tonight for helping us make the charts in our country and yours. During the last full week of November, we ranked 116th of the top 250 podcasts in the Christianity category in America. In Great Britain, we came in at 179 in religion and spirituality and 50 in Christianity. And over in Australia, we hit 71 in religion and spirituality and 42 in Christianity. Wow. Yeah,
0: wow. I don't, I don't check our rankings, uh, religiously. Uh Haha. But of Uh the times that I have checked them, 50 and 42, I think that's the highest we've ever ranked. And with the tens of Thousands of Christian podcasts in the United States, just making it into the top 250, never mind hitting 116, is absolutely amazing. And you got us there, listeners. Thank you so much for
1: listening to A Word Fitly Spoken and for sharing our episodes with your friends. Yes, thank you, listeners. And we've got lots of other resources on our website that you can check out and share with other friends too. find out how to contact us to speak at your next women's event at the speaking tab. Or you can check out some of the uh, helpful website under our resources tab and learn how to support us financially if you feel so led at the support tab and much, much more all at a word fitly spoken dot life. And until next time,
0: Believe your Bible, not Christmas myths, and walk worthy.